and I've, I find it very frustrating that how sclerotic the South African state is. You know, I think President Ramaphosa, who I admire, wants to do more things, but it's as if he, he you know, he presses buttons and nothing happens at the end of it. Hello, my name is Soli Mueng. Uh, welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. This is where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that matter in order to expand our worldview. Today, we speak to no other than Lord Peter Hain. He wants me to call him Peter, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, he's, it's very hard to introduce Lord Peter Haynes because he's been, he's done so much over so many years. He's, he was born in Kenya, of South African parents were activists against apartheid. He came to South Africa, he was completely active. He's been active even when he went to the UK where he, he was MP for 24 years, he served uh, as Secretary of State for, for Wales and 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 is in Neath. And he's also he's done he's occupied a lot of interesting positions in the UK government. He's he's also uh, served under the governments of both uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He has acted against Africa. Even in those positions he has to continue to speak out against all the wrongs in South Africa. He was there also when when Tony Blair and, and George W. Bush invaded Iraq. I'm interested to know what his views were and and whether or not what is going on in in, in Russia right now in Ukraine you know is is is, is uh, might end up the same way that America ended its journey in Afghanistan. So there's so much to talk about. Of course, I'm interested to know what his views are on South Africa. He has written 24 books. I have no idea where he finds the time to write 24 books. The latest of which is the Pretoria book. It says, uh, um, uh, what, what, what is it called? South Africa? And the Pretoria boy, it's South Africa's number one enemy. Public number one enemy. So I'm interested to know about it as well. State capture, Ramaphosa, Zuma, where are we? Now, let me stop because you see, it's going to take me the whole time to introduce Lord Peter Haynes. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much, Solly. It's good to talk. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having accepted to come and talk to us here. Let's start with you because it makes sense. It helps to, to frame the conversation. Who is Peter Haynes or Lord Peter Haynes? Well, as my memoir published recently by Jonathan Ball in South Africa, explains I was a Pretoria boy brought up in Pretoria of South African parents my dad born in Durban my mother in Port Alfred and uh, had a an un unusual childhood for a white youngster in those days in the late 1950s and early 1960s because my parents unlike uh, my relatives my cousins uh, my school friends uh, anybody that I had anything to do with. My parents were anti-apartheid activists, very unusual in the white community at that stage. And we experienced the full power of the police state, the repressive apartheid apparatus. Uh, they were jailed, they were issued with banning orders, and eventually we were forced into exile in Britain when I was 16. Hello, everyone. If you're interested in advertising on Worldview, drop us an email at worldview.help at gmail.com. We will send you an advertisement guide, which will include the rates and the process involved. 
a typical shout out for your company or project will be between 45 and 60 seconds. By advertising on our platform, you'll be supporting a company that wants to improve the public narrative. Once again, send us an email at worldview.help at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description below. Now, back to the interview. Were you, so you spoke, you did discuss politics with your parents. Were you, at your age as a teenager, were you acutely aware of what was going on? Did you have friends of your age who were also aware but disagreed with your maybe perspectives on what was going on? Well, there was politics uh, in our family. We couldn't we couldn't escape it, even if we wanted to. And I certainly didn't. I was proud of what my parents did, and I'd help them in whatever way I could. Putting leaflets through doors uh, during an election campaign in Pretoria, for example, um, when the Liberal Party of South Africa, which they were members, by the early 1960s, uh, when the African National Congress was banned, the PAC. Other parties were banned. It was the only legal anti-apartheid organization left in the country. Yeah. And in Pretoria, where we lived, which is, you know from your history, Solly, was the citadel of apartheid. It was the, 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 um, the seat of government um, where the security apparatus was also based. Uh, that were, they were not, became notorious. Uh, it wasn't like Johannesburg, which was much more metropolitan and had kind of radical uh, elements, although many had been jailed and, and made illegal. And of course, Mandela and the high command by the early 60s were in jail. So they were, they were the most notorious activists. And so you, you, couldn't, you couldn't escape the politics with our house being raided, uh, special branch cars at the bottom of our, our garden path, our, our, our driveway uh, following us everywhere. So you, you, you first got elected as an MP, I think in 1991 in the UK. I mean, you got caught up in the maelstrom of British global politics, economy, the Welsh, the Northern Ireland story. How in the world do you manage to do all of that and still have a look over your shoulder of, over, on what's going on in South Africa? I mean, like, how does that work? Well, I suppose because South Africa is part of me, um, and still, you know, it was a big part of, of my being. I mean, I was a Pretoria boy. I was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, supporting my parents, as I explained. But then when I got to Britain, very prominent, became very prominent, particularly for stopping all white South African sports tours, which is where the label public enemy number one uh, was given to me by the white South African uh, community. Uh, and so, you know, that, that, that was how I became, came to prominence. I didn't plan it, it just happened. And then, as you say, I became a Labour MP. And I suppose that the South African hinterland gave me a particular perspective on all of this. And when I was promoted into the Foreign Office to be the only British um, Minister for Africa born in Africa, and then into other jobs higher up in the cabinet, including negotiating the peace settlement in Northern Ireland, and having been minister for Europe and covering the Middle East and and so on, I mean that that I suppose gives me has given me a broader global perspective on yeah. South Africa's position, Britain's position, and um, on the world as, as a whole. And the South Africans never left you alone. I mean, when you you became a, almost the face of 
uh, as you mentioned, the, the ban on South Africa participating in global sports and, and the South African security agencies came after you. I mean, do you want to talk about that a little bit? What did they do? Oh, well, they, uh, they bugged um, and, uh, and burgled the anti-apartheid movement's headquarters. They arson bombed the headquarters of the African National Congress in London. Uh, none of these things were ever properly investigated, by the way, partly because the British security services were working hand in glove with the South African security services at that time. And uh, then, then most, most seriously, they sent me a letter bomb in June 1972, which arrived at our family home. I was still living with my parents uh, at the time, and it was opened on the breakfast table by my younger sister Sally, and suddenly there was this um, this contraption with wires and terminals and uh, uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, threats to us. And uh, we were told afterwards by the the police who took it away and made it safe that it had the ability to blow up not just me and my whole family, but the whole house. And of course, those were letter bombs of the kind that assassinated anti-apartheid leaders across the world, most notably Ruth First in Maputo um, and the student leader Abraham Tiro in Botswana, uh, but many others. I was just very lucky that mine didn't go off because of a fault of the trigger mechanism. And then a few years later, um, something completely bizarre happened to me. When I was arrested for a bank theft in London, Southwest London, near where I lived, very near where I lived, the branch of Barclays Bank, which I didn't even know had happened. Mm. It was nothing to do with me. Uh, and when the police turned up at my door, I didn't know what they were talking about when they took me down to the police station to keep me for 11 hours and eventually charged me. And that ended up in the Old Bailey the Britain's Supreme Criminal Court, and, and I was acquitted. So that there were continuous attacks on anti-apartheid activists like me. But you know, how, how did the, the the how did the UK or Britain become a home for apartheid leaders such as the late um, <coughs> sorry uh, Oliver Tambo and, and Tabombeki and many others, and also continue to work to work with the. <coughs> With the security services in South Africa. Well, I mean, Tabo Mbeki, as a young student, um, was based at Sussex University and, and then in London, and later, of course, grew to great prominence. Right. Uh, and Oliver Tambo went into exile when Nelson Mandela went underground in the early 1960s, and they agreed that he should lead the international anti apartheid effort. And London was the obvious place for it, uh, obviously being English speaking, the, the traditional links. And he had a house in North London where his family was based for, for many years. And he traveled the world, including out into ANC camps in Tanzania and Zambia. But I suppose because um, the British anti-apartheid movement uh, was the strongest one across the world. And there were many others, of course, but it was the strongest one. So you had this kind of, um, in a sense, dichotomy between, on the one hand, South African exiles from the struggle, including my family, but also, of course, the very 
leadership like Oliver Tambo and, and Tabo and Becky and many others came to London uh, because it was a natural, a natural place in a way. Even though the height of the Cold War, Washington and London and Berlin and Paris and Madrid were all, though they said they were against apartheid, effectively collaborating with the South African apartheid state, their secret services working together, and that's been well documented. Uh, because um, the South African apartheid state presented itself as a bulwark against communism yeah. very, very cleverly and astutely and wouldn't support the ANC. The only Western countries to do so were Scandinavian ones, um, especially Sweden. Olaf Palmer, of course, yeah. its, it's uh, prime minister was notable for that. And so the ANC had to look to the, so the former Soviet Union for arms, for training, for support, uh, and for material resources. So the, the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Empire, um, that the anti-apartheid struggle operated within the shadow of that. So, you know, this discussion about your continued link to South Africa is very important for me because there tends to be a tendency amongst younger activists in South Africa to think that people who leave South Africa stop being South African or they start loving or they stop loving South Africa or they cannot be considered to be potential supporters of South Africa anymore. But people like you have left many years ago. I am currently talking to you from Switzerland, but it's the story for, for, for another discussion. How do you how do you respond to that? People who don't understand, for instance, the role of Nelson Mandela. There are younger people who think he betrayed the revolution. He gave too much to the white people in South Africa. White people who leave South Africa do not love South Africa, or they don't want to be part of the new South Africa. But there are maybe millions of, of South Africans in the vast, vast diaspora around the, the world who continue to look over their shoulders to say, how can we do better? But everything that's going on in South Africa, the racist policies, the racist narratives by people like Julius Manella do not help, do they really? How do you, what do you say to those youngsters who think that you have to be in South Africa to love South Africa? Well, first of all, I didn't have a choice. I stopped my dad working. We had to leave the country like many other anti-apartheid activists who had to go into exile. Many came back. We had made our lives in, alive in Britain. I mean, I, I married in Britain. I had two children. I have seven grandchildren. So my life, because of the twists of history, was made in Britain. But I still I come back to teach in South Africa. I teach at um, the University of Pretoria's uh, business school, Gibbs, in, uh, in Johannesburg. Uh, and, um, you know, take a close interest. And, of course, I was asked by leading members of the ANC opposed to the corruption and state capture under Zuma to expose the international complicity of the corporates to that. But when I look at South African politics and the, the argument that the, stroke, the struggle was betrayed by Nelson Mandela, you know, I think that that's a, a misreading of history of a very serious kind. Apart from the fact that Mandela and, uh, and his fellow leadership comrades, Ahmed Kathrada, Governor Berkey, Walter Sasulu being perhaps the main ones, um, you know, they, they gave up a quarter of a century of their lives and more for the freedom struggle, for the kind of South Africa with a democracy, 
with all its imperfections and problems, a democracy where everybody can vote, regardless of the color of skin. That's what they, 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 they struggled for and they won. And when people say that, or some people say, a small minority um, say that Mandela sold out, they don't understand, I don't think fully, and I don't want to sound patronizing, but if you look at the history of the time, when the negotiations took place, the white minority still controlled the economy, still controlled the police, still controlled the army, the security services, the full powers of the state. Yes, they were negotiating with Mandela and his comrades because the whole future of South Africa was on the brink of civil war and economic collapse. They didn't do us out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, the President de Klerk and others didn't suddenly have a conversion on the road to Damascus. It was of necessity. But the, the power balance was very uh, delicate. And if you look at what happened, you see what the critics of Mandela seem to be saying is there should have been a revolutionary change. Right. Well, look at the revolutionary changes that happened in Mozambique and, uh, and Angola, for example, civil war for decades, the countries destroyed in many respects, landmines everywhere. Right. Look what happened in Latin America in similar situations, uh, drugs, barons arising, all that kind of thing. Now, whatever South Africa's problems are today, and they are considerable, uh, and corruption and state capture, the Zuma 10 years uh, of, of terrible destruction and looting uh, have left a terrible legacy. But in addition, apartheid's left a, a much bigger legacy of inequality and poverty. And you, you can't change that overnight. Now, if where I do agree with the critics is I think there should have been much more rapid economic transformation right. from 1994 onwards. But that's a very difficult thing to manage. And don't underestimate how hard it is. You know, I was in a Labour government for 12 years. We doubled spending on the health service, doubled it. Double spending on education and improved, um, you know, all sorts of if, if, the railways, everything in Britain was improved uh, as a, uh, when we came to power for, and, and under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And yet it was very hard because you're operating in an international capitalist system, neoliberal system, which is driving massive inequality all the time. Uh, and, uh, and there's huge. Um, wealth concentrated at the very top and it's very hard to operate as if South Africa is some kind of island on its own. It is in the middle of a global economy and Mandela and Mbeki had to wrestle with that. But had to be careful that you didn't see a flight of, of capital and wealth and skills uh, out of South Africa in the way that you did in, uh, for example, in, in Mozambique and Angola. Do you think those people who worked with Mandela, because Mandela was never alone, he was part of a team Absolutely. in the early days. As many of these people, political leaders are, you know, they sit in the, in the um, A list of political elites, if you want, of South Africa. Some of them are still active, like President Ramaphosa, others like Trevor Manuel, Valimusa, and others are retired, in, they're not in politics anymore. 
Do you They're not in frontline politics. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but do you think they should stand up and defend the legacy of Mandela? Because all these attacks by young, uninformed people about the, the intricacies of that period, they, they don't understand what was going on. But these people are still alive. They keep quiet. They don't say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not true. Mandela didn't sell out. These, this, these are the dynamics of the situation. Let's explain them to you. They're not doing that. Why? Well, I mean, I can't I, I, I speak for other people. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't live in South Africa. I, I visit as often as I can. Uh, and I will be doing so later again this year to, to teach and, and to do other things. But um, uh, look, I think I have, I've certainly heard, I've heard people like Mabuso Misimang when he was alive, Andrew Mangani, um, standing, you know, explaining the situation. Right. I don't want to patronize people who take this point of view, but, you know, they, they're um, young radicals who, 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 and I agree that the economic transformation has not been deep or sustained, sustained enough, um, and that inequality continues to rise, not just between, well, it, it's between those at the top, black and white now in, in, the, in the new South Africa. Um, but I think it's important people tell the truth about history. Do you think, uh, do South African presidents since the end of apartheid take your calls? I mean, do you, can you call Ramaphosa and say, hey, I'm coming over, uh, can we have coffee? Would he take your call? Would he listen to any advice you might have for him? Well, you know, <laughs> President Ramaphosa is a busy man. I don't think he needs to take my call. Uh, I, I can have access if I request it. But that would only be for a specific purpose. And, you know, over recent years, I've met cabinet ministers and other ministers and senior officials to, to uh, for example, try to recover the assets looted by the Guptas and, and the Zoomers and things like that. Um, and I've, I find it very frustrating that how sclerotic the South African state is. Uh, you know, I think President Ramaphosa, who I admire, wants to do more things, but it's as if he, he you know, he presses buttons and nothing happens at the end of it. We've spent more than 300 million rands on the state, on the Zonda Commission State Capture, at which you testified, I believe. We now, the report has come out in bits and pieces, but it's out there. A lot of people have been implicated in wrongdoing over the part of the years with Jacob Zuma in, until recent, it is during the period covered by the Zona Commission. The National Prosecutions Authority has a head who was celebrated widely when she was appointed. We still do not see any prosecutions of those A-listers who have been implicated in wrongdoing. Do you think South Africans should continue to be patient or do you suspect something is not right? Just like many South Africans do. Well, it's frustrating, Solly. Uh, everybody's frustrated, but I don't think there's a lack of goodwill on behalf of the, the, the head of um, uh, the NPA, Shamila Batoy. I think she wants to move faster, but she has to move carefully. You look at, for example, the way former President Zuma has used his lawyers to delay and prevaricate. Um, a lot of lawyers are making a lot of money uh, out of stopping bad people being put in jail, to be frank, for their looting and their corruption. That's not an excuse. But I don't think it's a lack of intention. I mean, you know, 
Um, the former Secretary General of the ANC, Ace Magatruli, has been arrested. He's no longer in position. Uh, President, former President Zuma was jailed briefly for contempt of court. There are not many countries that do that to former presidents. Um, you know, and for all that's wrong in South Africa at the moment, there's a lot wrong. And I'm, I'm worried about the country and the state of, of, I mean, of sure politics and democracy. But, there's a, you know, there's a lot, a lot to, to, to um, admire the Constitution, the operation of the Constitutional Court, the, the independence of the judiciary generally, um, the, uh, the investigative uh, free media. You know, there are a lot of countries in which this kind of discussion and many others that I've taken part in on SABC or, uh, or uh, ENCA or, you know, Radio 702 or SAFM or any of the outlets that there are, as well as the print media. And of but course, the like Daily it. Maverick. You know, there's a, there's a very, there's an independent um, media and uh, that, that's a good thing for democracy. South Africans want to see justice, Peter. They want to see things happening. Yeah. Zuma was not charged for state capture. Uh, and the fact that, you know, he gets angry, he plays the tricks that he plays, surely shouldn't be an excuse not to be charged. The, the, the justice Zondo, Zondo, while he was uh, acting, while he was chairing the commission, made it very clear that a lot of the information that is processed, that is in the commission, would be made available to the NPA. But the NPA is still making excuses. South Africans just want to know that there's equality before the law, that nobody stands above the law, irrespective of how many, how angry they get and what tricks they play. They're not getting that satisfaction. That's no, I, I agree. I completely agree. And I'm not defending the delays or, or any kind of prevarication. Um, in, in a sense, well, I've, I've said what I have to say about it. Yeah. I would like okay. to see it happen much more quickly and, and for, for the country to move on. It's no good just having inquiries. Right. Nothing happens at the end of it. Let's let's move to Russia. There's this war happening there. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine. It was in part of part of what it said to justify it didn't it, it, to justify its invasion was that there had been atrocities atrocities in the east of Ukraine committed by the government that is now under siege. What do you think needs to happen there to end this war? Would there be a nuclear war? Is Putin so cornered that he might press that red button? Is there a way out of this for the world so that everybody still is, would still be able to walk around with their chins up? It's very hard to know at the moment. Um, it's been, this is a barbaric invasion uh, by, by President Putin and he is the one responsible. The destruction of Ukraine, uh, coming on top of what was done elsewhere in the world by the, Rus the Russians and others in Syria, for example. You know, you just look at what is a, a country, a European country with strong infrastructure and skills base and, you know, the breadbasket of the world in many respects, grain, its grain harvests and so on. Um, it has been terrible and brutal and absolutely ruthless. But the Ukrainians have been incredibly brave. And clearly Putin thought he could you know, invade the country and run all over it and control it. And, um, and yet the Ukrainians, you know, their democratic instincts have been very, very strong. And they've received a lot of support from other European countries and, and quite rightly so, because if Putin wins in, in Ukraine, he won't stop. 
He's already talking about annexing Transnistria, part of Moldova, a Russian-speaking enclave there. Um, he's, he, there's, there's Kaliningrad, which is another Russian enclave um, uh, in, the, in the Baltics, uh, and, and threatening um, the former Soviet nations that gained their independence and their democracy uh, on the Baltic states, you, you know, um, Poland, Hungary, and so on. Um, so I, I don't think, that, I think he has to be stopped. Um, I also think that the West made some mistakes. I don't ever think it was a good idea to have uh, encouraged Ukrainian membership of NATO. There was the Budapest Agreement between, in 1994, signed in Budapest between um, Russia and the United States and uh, the United Kingdom uh, to guarantee Ukraine's independence and neutrality in return for Ukraine giving up its nuclear arsenal. From so the you, some form of Finlandization of Ukraine? Yeah, some sort of Finlandization. Protected by the Ukrainians themselves. Yeah, so I, I think I think there were mistakes made, but nothing justifies the barbaric um, atrocity that Putin's forces have. How can he be stopped? He, he's not going to stop himself. What would it take for him to stop? Is he cornered? Well, I don't think he's he's achieved what he wanted to achieve as quickly as he expected to. Right. Um, so he's effectively been had to concentrate uh, in the south and in the east of the country, where in the Donbass uh, area, for example, where there are large Russian-speaking uh, communities, um, uh, part of the population there that actually are more aligned to Russia than in many respects than they are to Ukraine. There's also, of course, Crimea, which he annexed, uh, in, in a few years ago, and Georgia, which he invaded before then. So um, there are precedents, and you know Georgia happened. Then, then Crimea was annexed. Um, now Ukraine is invaded. Uh, what next if he's not stopped? That is the question the world faces, and you know there's been divided opinion in Africa, for example, for reasons that I think you can explain, but I don't think you can justify. Kenya has taken a very strong stance against the invasion, seen it as a kind of imperialist um, uh, imperialist venture, which I happen to agree with. Uh, on the other hand, South Africa sat on the fence, as of a lot of other African countries, uh, as, as of China and India and so on. But in the end, you see, if countries can just invade others, and, uh, and, and do what they like with them, as Putin wants to do. That sets a very, very dangerous uh, precedent. Do you think South Africa did the right thing to sit on the fence? Right? Do you think South Africa did the right thing to sit No, I don't. Uh, I would have liked to have seen, you know, a stance similar to Kenya's. Right. But I also understand why there's an ambivalence uh, in African countries who look at the West's colonial record and, and uh, of course, Britain was a big colonial power, so was France, so were other European countries, and say, well, you know, not so long ago, you were doing these kind of things to us. Right. So don't, don't kind of adopt some high moral stature uh, with us. So there's an understandable history, and of course, in South Africa's case, 
as we've explained, as I've, I've uh, as we've discussed. Interview, uh, sided with um, the South African state. It was the Iraq invasion, um, which has been a disaster. And uh, so people say, well, you know, yeah, you are condemning Russia, but what did you do in Iraq? So, you know, the, it's one thing that really worries me, the question of leadership. You know, when you look at the around, around the world, is there anyone that you admire, that you think is a good leader? And, and let me tell you why I'm asking this question when we see leaders doing the things that they do whether it's uh american former president of america uh, donald trump or, or russian president putin other bad leaders in africa disputes justify the things they do so they it's almost like there's no moral high ground anymore there's no one to look up to to emulate to say we need that kind of leader is there anybody that you know, do, are you are you do you think about these things about no, I, I do a lot. Surely, I, I think you're right. I mean, we we are plagued at the moment by very poor and often bad leadership right across the world, and that was epitomised by Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and uh, President Xi in China and Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Boris Johnson in the UK. Um, these are people who, you know, are on on the right and are not interested in in equal opportunities for all, in conquering poverty. They're only interested in their own power, and that for their elite and, and their base. Um, and yeah, we 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 suffered very very bad leadership, and I'm afraid. It, when you look around the world today, it's often the smaller countries that uh, that provide. Good examples of leadership. I think of Jacinda Ardern in uh, in New Zealand, for example, Meta Friedrichsen in Denmark. Um, there isn't much good leadership at all. And, and you know, it's fantastic that uh, Emmanuel Macron beats the the, race, the racist fascist Marine Le Pen, but he he um, he's he'd been very unpopular as well. And I don't think his economic policies have delivered for for the majority of people in France. And this comes back to what I said earlier on about South Africa being in the shadow of this neoliberal state, which is driving inequality, breeding discontent, uh, breeding populism uh, and right-wing forces, scapegoating immigrants, uh, xenophobia on the increase. And until you tackle that problem, until you get an international financial and economic system that grants equal opportunities to all, you're going to get these um, this bad leadership and, and this instability. When you look at the world today and you compare it to, to say, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, is it a better place? You know, my dad used to say to me when I was a youngster in Pretoria, and I talked a lot to him uh, and subsequently, the world is, is, is progressing, it's getting better, he used to say. African countries are becoming independent. Colonialism is ending. Apartheid will eventually be overthrown. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights um, uh, applies. Uh, there's more equal opportunities for women and racism is being fought and, and so on. Um, 
and democracy is being established in not perfectly, but in more parts of the world. And it seems in some ways, in many ways, that that's going into reverse. And it just goes to underline something that I've learned in my life and something that I say in my, in my memoir, A Pretoria Boy, that you've got to keep, the battle is never won. Yeah. The flame of freedom is never kept bright once you have lit it. Um, you've got to keep, you've got to keep sustaining. There's an ideological balkanization of the world, isn't it? Um, well, there's a dominant economic system which applies in China and India and uh, Russia's in its own way, uh, in a statist kind of corrupt way, uh, and applies across the West, which is the neoliberal uh, system where public is bad and private is good and, and greed is worshipped and I'm all right, Jack, forget about everybody else. And a small elite at the top is getting richer and richer and everybody else is falling behind. Now, that is also against a backdrop where, you know, poverty has been millions of escaped poverty in India and China, for example, and in Africa. Um, so it's a complex picture. But I think one of the reasons you've seen such bad leadership across the, uh, across the world is that um, uh, the old systems of democracy, if you like, liberal democracy, have not been seen to deliver in a way that they did after the Second World War for the great bulk of people. Uh, and you've seen the middle of society as well as the bottom. The bottom of society is always lost out. But the middle of society has been badly squeezed and damaged and hit. And that's why you've got so much uh, resentment across the world and so much political populism. I want to go, my last question for you today is about Salavika. If you were to give one message from a podium to the people in Salavika, what would you say? Trust in democracy, trust in the rule of law, but campaign to get economic transformation. I don't mean the radical economic transformation so-called on behalf of the Zoomers and the Magashulis and the Malemas and all that section of, of the ANC and outside the ANC really want it for themselves. They don't actually want it for the people. It's a, to be able to loot again and to get on the gravy train again, as they have done in the past. And what um, you genuinely want is, is equal opportunities for, for all. And that's got to be the watchword. But at the same time, it's got to be done by with economic growth and economic success and, and to do that you have to have a successful business sector and you have to encourage in, in you know entrepreneurialism and business competitiveness you can't you end up redistributing poverty otherwise yeah. uh, and so that would be my message and and just one final point i see south africa because of my history from a global perspective there's too much introspection too much parochialism in south africa that people think, well, if I take, if I take this from that person and give it to myself, the whole of the country will be improved. The whole of the country will only be improved if we all grow together. Yeah. Uh, and then you can redistribute um, much more effectively uh, and deliver a much, much more equal opportunity. Don't grow the economy and South Africa's economy 
hasn't grown now for many years, mainly the legacy of the disastrous Zuma decade, then um, then you get, you get trouble, which is what you have in the country today. Yeah. Well, Lord Peter Hain, Peter, thank you so very much for giving us this time in your, I'm sure, very busy schedule and uh, sharing the, the words of wisdom, your views on what's going on in the world, in Russia, in South Africa, and hopefully many South Africans would have listened to this. And to our viewers out there, if you've come this way, of course, you've enjoyed the content, please continue sharing and liking this channel and get more people to know of it. And uh, to you, Dr. Haynes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Solly.